This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. All right, welcome everyone to Behind the Knife podcast. My name is Alex Wojcicki and I'm going to be your host this evening. I am a PGY-5 plastic surgery just finishing in Edmonton, Canada an incoming Iranian Surgical Critical Care Fellow at the University of Washington. Hi, I'm Jamie O. I'm a Chief Resident in the General Surgery Program at the University of Washington, and I'll be a Burn Trauma Critical Care Fellow at Harborview next year. All right, and uh, this is Cliff Schechter. I'm an Assistant Professor of Surgery at Stanford University. I'm a burn surgeon, plastic surgeon, surgical intensivist, and I direct the Regional Burn Center at Santa Clara Valley Medical Center. Hello there, Tom Pham. I'm a burn director at the University of Washington Burn Center, and I'm happy to be a panelist on this podcast. Very excited to be with you. Okay, I'm going to start with our case. The case begins with a 40-year-old gentleman who contacts a high-voltage power line while riding a tractor on his farm, presents to the emergency department in Trauma Bay with a chief complaint of severe pain in dominant right arm and upper extremity. The initial assessment proceeds with a primary survey in the trauma bay, including APCD and E assessment, adjuncts, two large bore IVs, Foley catheter, C-spine immobilization, assessment of the patient's airway, their breathing, looking for any signs of obvious tension, hemothorax, mass hemothorax, whale chest segments. Moving on to the patient's circulation, obviously for trauma patients, most concerning is for hemorrhage, whether external or internal and looking for signs of an unstable pelvis. Proceeding on, neurological examination is completed. And then finally, environment and exposure um, are then performed. Main physical findings from the patient's examination, patient's stable, they do have a flex and contracted wrist, uh, as well as flexion contracture at the level of the elbow. They are unable to passively or actively extend their upper extremity, their wrist or their fingers, and with severe pain on passive extension, of their upper extremity. There's notable contact points on the right sole. We're going to start with some discussion by Jamie here on the epidemiology of high voltage electrical injuries. Yeah, I'll start with some general epidemiology. Electrical injuries make up about 3,000 hospitalizations in the U.S. every year, accounting for about 3 to 4% of all burn injuries. It seems small, but there's high mortality associated with electrical injuries, especially high voltage and about 40% of serious electrical injuries are fatal, leading to about 1,000 deaths every year in the U.S. With electrical injuries, there's a bimodal distribution. Low-voltage injuries tend to be in the pediatric population due to household appliances, and high-voltage injuries uh, occur in the sort of working-age population due to high-tension electrical power lines or, or heavy machinery. And a special group of electrical injuries is lightning injuries. 
which makes up about 300 injuries per year, which is quite remarkable given that there's an estimated greater than 25 million lightning strikes in the U.S. annually. We're going to start talking about some of the mechanism regarding that. We're going to have to delve into a little bit of the physics behind electricity to talk about mechanism here. We think of electricity in terms of electrons measured as voltage, current, and resistance. So electrons flow from high to low concentrations. The difference between the high and low concentrations is the voltage. Think of voltage as a force being exerted on the electrons, and injuries in general can be classified as high or low voltage injuries. That can be an indicator of severity. In this case, with a high voltage power line, we are generally worried about a more severe injury. Jamie, I have some comments, some questions, if I may jump in. You know, when I was actually preparing for this session, I was remembering that, in fact, uh, high voltage injuries do occur in children. It's just very rare in outside of the world. And actually, I you know read about high voltage injury in children, especially in areas where the regulations are not so good, sometimes in conflict zones or you know high voltage lines uh, come closer in contact with kids playing around. And so this is very interesting as like the epidemiology in the Western world is a little bit different sometimes than in the lower middle income countries for high voltage injuries. Yeah, certainly. As you say, with increased regulation within countries, the upkeep of electrical power lines, you'll see less of the high voltage injury, particularly in the general population. Here in the U.S., it's oftentimes a workplace injury. The current is the amount of injury or, or the volume of electrons flowing per second, but there's direct current and alternating current. So direct current is a constant one-way flow of the electrons. So that's found in batteries, railway tracks, and lightning. Whereas alternating current is a back and forth or cyclic flow of electron expresses hertz. And sort of the last thing is resistance, which is pretty important. So the resistance is a property of the material that the electrons are flowing through. And it's the ability of that material to reduce the amount of flow as the electrons pass. And this varies depending on the level of water and electrolytes that are present in the material. This is very relevant to the human body because there are different structures and different tissue types with different resistance. So low resistance structures include blood vessels, nerves, and muscles, whereas high resistance tissues are bone, fat, and skin. With the caveat that skin can have varied resistance depending on surface moisture levels. So wet skin generally has low resistance, whereas dry skin like calluses has high resistance. And the higher the resistance in the tissue, the more heat or injury that's localized within there. So in terms of the injury itself from electricity, there's multiple reasons why tissue becomes injured. So there's a direct effect of electrical injury on our systems, such as dysrhythmias on the heart and respiratory arrest from electrical stimulation. Then there's the conversion from electrical activity to heat due to the high resistance in some tissues and can also lead to tissue coagulation. And then cells also experience electroporation. So that's where the cell membranes become disrupted leading to cell death and edema. And there's any other secondary effects like the flashover effect leading to superficial burns, flame injuries from the clothes catching on fire, and shockwave injuries leading to a blast effect and secondary trauma. People talk about a thousand volts being the threshold for high voltage versus low voltage. What do you think about that? Like, you know, is that easy to figure out? Is it low crude? Yeah. 
you know, I, I found different definitions for high versus low voltage. And, you know, a thousand is probably a good benchmark. So high voltage, I actually found as defined as greater than 500 to a thousand. But I think it's going to be hard to actually measure it, right? But it's a good benchmark to think of low versus high in terms of what was the original source. So think of household appliances or the household outlets. They're generally restricted in how high the voltage, the maximum volt. So if it's a household electrical injury, then you think of it as low voltage. If you don't mind me jumping in there to Tom Pham's point, actually the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, otherwise known as OSHA, defines voltage thresholds that are going to cause cardiac arrest, assuming resistance of dry skin. And so that's where the thousand volt number actually comes into matter because a thousand volts uh, when you go above a thousand volts on dry skin, you're starting to generate upwards of half an amp to an amp of current, which is the amount of current that can cause cardiac arrest. But of course, that changes when you have wet skin. Then you're dealing with much, much lower voltage that can cause cardiac arrest. You know, even household 110, 120 voltage can cause cardiac arrest if a body is fully submerged in water because it's very easy to achieve over an amp of current in that setting. And just keep in mind, any of you who have electrical vehicles, your Tesla charges at about 17 to 30 amps of current. So, you know, we're talking many fold higher uh, than it would take to cause cardiac arrest. Yeah, great points, Cliff. Thank you. Moving on to the injury pattern, when you take all of this together, we can think of it in terms of different systems. So the first that we think of and highly relevant to burns is the skin. And as mentioned here, the contact point is on the right sole. And so that's important because it can give you sort of tips or hints on where the injury can be based off contact point and the grounding point. It's most often found at the side of the contact of the source, and then usually the ground, whatever part of the body is contacting the ground at the time of injury. But you have to be wary because it doesn't necessarily predict the path of the current and can be misleading. For example, minimal burns, external burns does not equate minimal internal injury. Another system is your musculoskeletal system. So Generally, this system is injured by high voltage burns. And as I mentioned before, bones have pretty high resistance. It's actually the highest resistance of any tissue in your body. And therefore, it generates the most amount of heat, leading to osteonecrosis. Muscle, similarly, can be affected by the heat from the bones or from the effect of the electricity on the muscle itself, and lead to edema and tissue necrosis, which then leads to rhabdomyolysis. In terms of the cardiac system, about 15% of injuries have cardiac manifestations. These so lightning and high voltage injuries are more likely to lead to asystole, whereas DCAC currents, so lower voltage injuries, lead to ventricular fibrillation. And the most common fatal arrhythmia is VFib in general. The thing to know about the cardiac system is that the dysrhythmia can occur early within one hour of injury, but it can also occur late, uh, as late as 12 hours post-injury. So it's important to keep that in mind when you're evaluating the patient. And then in general, the myocardium can be injured from thermal heat from the electricity rather than as a dysrhythmia. The CNS and the peripheral nerves can also be affected by electricity, leading to deficits uh, down the line, memory disturbances. And we'll talk more about that in the long-term effects. And then you can have acute kidney injury from hypovolemia, rhabdomyolysis, and then other systems, such as the eyes, the tympanic membrane, can have vascular injury, such as mesenteric ischemia and arterial thrombosis from electricity. In terms of AC versus DC, it's important 
to keep this in mind because it can affect the injury pattern. So alternating current, just a reminder, it's um, where you have a cyclic flow current that can actually lead to severe injury. Low frequency alternating current can cause tetany. That's where a person will come into contact with the electricity and it'll be low enough stimulation that it causes the muscles to contract, most commonly the hand, leading to the patient grabbing the source of the electricity, prolonging the duration of contact, increasing the amount of injury to the patient. Whereas high voltage AC does cause high destruction, but doesn't have quite the same tetany effect. Similar to DC, there's more of a propelling effect so that once you come into contact with the direct current, you generally don't have prolonged tetany. You'll be actually propelled away from the source. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. The last thing to talk about in terms of epidemiology and injury mechanism and patterns is that there's a good number of pre-hospital cardiac arrests that can occur with electrical injury. As mentioned, there's a big effect on the cardiac system. And in general, you want to follow your ACLS principles. But the thing to keep in mind for electrical injury is that different from other forms of trauma, there's actually a recommendation to perform prolonged CPR regardless of the initial rhythm of cardiac arrest. Studies have found good outcomes, even for those with asystole. And keep in mind that fixed and dilated pupils, which is generally a bad sign, can actually be secondary to autonomic dysfunction rather than brain injury. And so it's not necessarily a marker of poor outcomes down the line. Even with return of cardiac circulation, keep in mind that the patient can still have respiratory arrest from the electrical activity, and so prolonged intubation may be warranted. And for cardiac monitoring after injury, if it's a dysrhythmia or concern for dysrhythmia, monitor the patient for about 12 to 24 hours on telemetry. Whereas high-voltage exposures or currents passing through the thorax or somebody with a history of cardiac disease, you do want to be very wary of these folks and do a cardiac workup up front and then continue to monitor, as mentioned, for 24 hours. My next question was about contact points. Why are these called contact points? So what's important about that? Yeah, so contact points, um, as mentioned, generally you see them where electrical contact with the body occurred. And what's important is that there's a specific path that the electrical current will generally take through the body. Most often, when you see contact points in the palms, you can imagine that the electricity went from one hand through the limb, across the chest, out to the other hand. It's important to have a higher suspicion of cardiac injury or respiratory injury in your patients. 
Yeah, I want to make the point that contact points, just the way they're named, they can be quite subtle. Most of your injuries are due to alternating currents. And so each one of your points is both an entry and an exit. The current cycle is 60 times per second. You can see how a contact point is both an entry and an exit. I have one more question, please. Is there something specific about calling something an electrocution versus an electrical injury? I'm not, not sure. I'm not sure quite what you're... Um... I can get all of them up, yeah. Sure. So, you know, this this term gets thrown around very commonly, especially by providers that don't care for burned patients. So, you know, the patient will come in, they got zapped with electricity, and everyone in the ER and hospital was saying the patient got electrocuted. Electrocuted, by definition, actually means there was cardiac arrest from the electrical current, as opposed to an electrical injury it can be anything as benign as some blackening and soot on the finger to deeper injuries, to large burns, but to be electrocuted, the heart had to have stopped from the current. Well, I guess I can talk about trauma next, what it means to consider an electrical injury in front of you. It's important for us to remind ourselves and remind the audience that a burn is first and foremost a trauma injury. And nowhere is it more true than scenarios where there's a high voltage electrical injury. Patients have sustained falls as a result of that trauma. I have seen that many times. The classic example is the tree trimmer in his elevated bucket who falls to the ground and that's when EMS finds that person. The other important factor to note, and uh, Jamie has already talked about that a little bit, is titanic contractions are powerful enough sometimes to break the bones. I have taken care of patients with spinal column fractures, spinal cord injury, and extremity fractures in conjunction with electrical burns. So when in doubt as a provider, is it safest to apply a C-collar and maintain cervical, thoracic, and lumbar spine precautions until the patient can be imaged? Then a good neurologic exam includes an assessment of global responsiveness. The GCS score is widely used to document alertness. Another abbreviated system is using the mnemonic AFU, where A is alert, V is verbal, P is response to pain, and U is unresponsive. For the injured extremity especially, a detailed neurovascular exam should be done before you take this patient to the operating room should they need to go to the operating room soon. Dr. Pham, if I may interrupt, is there any particular imaging that you would automatically order for these patients who present with high voltage electrical injuries? On high voltage injuries, I will ask for cervical, thoracic, and lumbar spine imaging. Let me next talk about resuscitation. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, the extent of injury to the soft tissue and other deeper structures, and Jamie was kind enough to talk about how you know energy gets into your bones, can heat it up, so the uh, areas around the bones can be very injured. So therefore, the extent of injury is much larger than what the providers can see at the surface. Hence, while we recommended fluids for the Advanced Burn Life Support course, and we did that about a decade ago, we use four mils per kilogram per TBSA for predicted formula in electrical burns. This is in contrast to two mils per kilogram per TBSA for other types of thermal trauma in adults. Our goal was to give clinicians a little bit more wiggle room in case the surface TBSA grossly underestimated the extent of injury. Your output goal in high voltage electrical injuries should target about 100 mils per hour in adults if there is visible pigmented urine. This pink-red pigmentation is caused by myoglobin and hemoglobin in the urine released after muscle damage. We found this sign to be far more useful than measuring creatinine kinase in the blood, honestly. 
Myoglobinuria is a major risk factor for acute renal failure. So the goal for us is to clear the pigment by driving a higher urine output. Inability to clear the urine from this pigmented color usually means that there's still significant muscle injury that needs to be addressed surgically. So search for physical findings of elevated compartment pressures, some evidence of muscle necrosis, contracted flex and cold extremities, sometimes early damage control amputation actually can be life-saving for the patient. And after the urine clears and becomes yellow, we as providers can target the usual urine output goal for a burn patient, namely 0.5 mils per kilogram per hour. That roughly translates into 30 to 50 mils per hour for most of us. Other options such as alkalinization of the urine, fluid bolus infusions, and diuretics are not supported by evidence. So we've summed up the initial evaluation and management of our patient with a high-voltage electrical injury. When you see these patients, it's critical to follow ACLS and ATLS principles, remembering that while burn patients are also trauma patients, electrical injuries can also lead to cardiac dysrhythmias that may require prolonged CPR and complicate neurologic exam findings. It's also important to gather information about the mechanism and circumstances of the injury so that you can appropriately evaluate for the injury patterns that may be associated with high-voltage electrical injuries. In our next episode, we'll talk more about how to manage these patients once they're in the hospital and evaluate and treat long-term sequelae of electrical injuries. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.